الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم فاعتبروا يا اولي الابصار سبحان ربك رب العزه اما يصفون وسلاما على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم There are many different challenges facing the religion of Islam and the many different challenges facing individual Muslims. And sometimes when we confront these different challenges, sometimes when we identify possible solutions to these different challenges, sometimes a person can get confused as to what is a solution to what type of particular challenge. And specifically, when we look at the twin uh, wings that Allah SWT has given us which is ilm and dhikr or knowledge and spirituality knowledge and worship, knowledge and taqwa, knowledge and piety sometimes it's not clearly apparent to what extent knowledge can be used and to what extent ibadah and zikr have to be used and sometimes people might confuse two of these things or sometimes people might get confused uh, about these two approaches so let's say somebody was to put forth the following proposition is that there's secular modernity and secular modernity poses a whole set of questions uh, for any and all faiths and that includes the religion of Islam. That is certainly true. But to what extent can those questions be countered and to what extent can those questions be understood even let alone answered without any ibadah and without any spirituality that needs to be investigated. So the first thing we should understand is that there are two types of fard, fard al-ayn and fard al-kifaya. Fard al-ayn is that thing which is obligatory in every single Muslim. There is nobody who can stipulate that it is obligatory or mandatory upon every single Muslim to be able to answer every question that any non-Muslim or any Western secular or any non-Islamic ideology presents to Islam. There is no way a Muslim needs to answer that and the haqq or the haqqaniyyah or the truth of the deen of Islam is not predicated in any way upon having that answer yourself or having even that answer articulated by others. In other words, the deen of Islam is haqq irrespective of whether or not you or me might have an answer to each and every individual or collective question that is presented to us by people who are outside or sometimes even inside the fold of Islam. So the question then, is it a farda kifaya? Is it necessary that there should be a member, a group of people in the ummah who have such a level of intellectual sophistication and academic ability to answer every single question and challenge that Islam is presented? It really depends how you look at it. And the reality is, is that if you look in our Muslim history, certainly Imam al-Huzayr studied Greek logic, studied Aristotelian logic, studied Aristotelian philosophy. But he used that to augment, not to replace, to augment his grounding in the Qur'an and Sunnah. Because contrary to popular misconception that okay, the deen can only take you so far, and now you have to take Western sources to take you the rest of the way, we would actually say it's completely the opposite. That the Western social sciences can only take you so far and they fall short. And it's actually the superior type of ilm, which is revelation, wahi and prophecy, nabuwa, that actually brings a human being to a complete understanding of the ideal. Uh, concept of humanity or the ideal society or the ideal political etc. type of system. So Imam al used some of those things but he, ref- he used it to refute certain theological sects that existed in his time. The critical thing to understand and every honest student of history would have to acknowledge this 
Imam Ghazali did not even attempt to write a refutation of Aristotelian metaphysics. Uh, I should again uh, explain this sometimes. I mentioned this to you uh, about four weeks ago or maybe six weeks ago. That from time to time we will talk about things that are a bit more academic or whatever, ilmi in nature. Every week we're not going to do a, a very a spiritual ibadat, zikr, feel-good type of bayan. Right? Uh, because just like this whole purpose of this talk is actually to suggest that we need to use both of these tools, ilm and ibadah, but we have to understand how, to what extent any of each, each of these tools can be applied. So today really is to trying to understand the rabt or in some cases the, the dissonance between these two approaches. So the early ulama studied these things, but they studied them to complement their existing knowledge. They studied them just as asbab. They didn't, in other words, they studied them as we would say, not linafsihi. They didn't study them in of themselves as they viewed these types of uh, non-revealed sciences as having any merit or virtue in of themselves. But they studied those as means and methods, perhaps to attain a goal that was desired or even some sense obligated by the Quran and the Sharia. So. Imam Ghazali has never tried and you will not find other of our great thinkers who have tried to do this refutation. If you, that said, right, what about the current time, right? What about secularism? What about quote-unquote modernity? What about postmodernism? What about beyond postmodernism? What about cosmopolitanism? What about pragmatism? What about pragmaticism? What about empiricism? What about nihilism? What about atheism, agnosticism? All of these different things. Does Islam have to answer them in such a way that all of these people would do sajda to you? Is this the determinant for what is the haqqaniyat of Islam? It's impossible. That is what we call qiyasma al-fariq. What happened with the anbiya is totally different. And no Muslim, right? There is no way you can refute the theory of evolution on their terms. That is the critical difference that our elders made. And even the great scholars of today, the principal two, maybe who are the foremost in English who are in this tradition, are Timothy Winter and Sherman Jackson. Timothy Winter and Sherman Jackson, Abdul Hakim Murad, and also Abdul Hakim Jackson, uh, they both happen to have taken the same Muslim name, Abdul Hakim. Both of these scholars, actually number one, are deeply grounded in the Arabic language. Number two, are deeply grounded in the entire Islamic intellectual tradition, not just one or two people like Shatibi or uh, Bakilani or Ibn Khaldun, but they're deeply grounded in the whole tradition. And what they have not tried to do, right, Sherman Jackson has not tried to refute secularism, right, but what he's done rather is that individual Muslims who might be educated, Muslims like you and me who are either products or are currently going through a secular liberal arts education, the type of questions and challenges they face is there a way that we can, using our own Islamic discourse, using our own first principles, bolster that Muslim in the face of this onslaught? And that is what Timothy Winter and Sherman Jackson do, right? They do not attempt to use Max Weber or other philosophers and to argue with those people on their terms because that is impossible to do. Let me give you the example that I took of evolution, right? It is in no way required for Islam to put out a refutation of evolution that would entail evolutionary biologists doing sajda to the Muslim scholars who put forth this alternative theory. Obviously, I'm not talking a physical sajda. That's obviously not allowed. I'm talking about if somebody makes the argument uh, that the magicians did sajda to Sayyidina Musa Islam, the poets did sajda to Rasulullah uh, the people of Tib, the people of medicine did sajda to Isla First of all, these were anbiya, right? We are totally different from them. Uh, and 
if you look at each of the things that they did sajda to, they actually weren't doing sajda to the zat of the Nabi. They were doing sajda to the mu'jizah, the miracle that was bestowed upon that Prophet by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it wasn't Rasulullah's poetry that won the contest, it was the Qur'an al-Kareem, right? That's the Kalam Allah, it's not Kalam al-Rasul. Right? And similarly, it wasn't Sayyidina Musa's own inherent ability. That was a mu'jiz that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him, that when he casted his staff, it would turn into a real serpent that would devour uh, the tricks and the machinations of the, of the pagan Egyptian magicians. And that was a miracle that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him, that when he put his hands in his pocket or when he took his hands out, uh, they would be shining with a white nur. Similarly, Sayyidina Isa, not in his own inherent ability, was he able to revive the dead. Uh, it was, or cure the blind, or cure the leper. This was something, a mu'jizah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them. And mu'jizahs only occur for the anbiya. And all of these mu'jizahs were non-intellectual feats. To do qiyas on this and to think that somehow we can reach an intellectual endeavor, endeavor through our own brain, right, through our own akal that matches the mu'jizat of the anbiya, that is really a far-fetched claim to make in this deen of Islam. And there's no, no, why is it that you cannot entirely refute evolution on their terms? Because really it comes down to your first terms. Now let's look at the theory of human evolution. And this is something I studied. I made it a point at the University of Chicago. I took evolutionary biology and I took human genetics. Because geneticists at that time actually contested what is actually known as the fossil theory of human evolution. Now you have certain geneticists who are trying to pair the two. And this is still a current debate in the field of genetics. The fossil theory of human evolution. Simply, and let's separate this out, Islam is not against Darwinian theory of natural selection. Uh, that's not an issue, right? That is common sense, that's perfectly fine. That if there were giraffes of different, who's, who, there were different types of giraffes, right? Some of them had long necks, some of them didn't. And those giraffes who had long necks, they survived because they were able to eat whatever the leaves on taller branches. That is perfectly acceptable in Islam that within a species certain characteristic traits are preferred and they last longer because of the theory of the survival of the fittest and hence those fittest who survive they, their genetic their characteristic traits are propagated through their genes and through reproduction Islam is also okay with evolution across species in the following sense you, for example you take animals that were amphibian and there were, there were in the amphibian species, there were certain animals who for whatever reason, and science doesn't give you any reason for this, for whatever reason they chose to hang out more in the water. So when they chose to hang out more in the water, those of their attributes that were more, more conducive to aquatic life became reproduced in their progeny because those who didn't have those attributes would die out and would not live long enough to have young. Similarly, in that same amphibian species, those who chose, those members of that species who chose to hang out, so to speak, more on land, those, their attributes, uh, those uh, members of that group whose attributes were more conducive to surviving on land propagated those attributes. In the end, you actually ended up with two different species, uh, one which was completely land-based and one which is completely aquatic. It's the theory of human evolution that Islam is a problem with, and the problem that Islam has with it is not logical. No matter how many logical reasons we can give, and I'm going to come to that because you would have noticed sometimes in my class also, I do give you logical reasons, but there's a limit to rationalization, justification, and logical arguments in understanding the deen. Now, the fossil theory of human evolution, right, basically they've discovered different fossils. All they can say conclusively, scientifically, is that, okay, you have primates, whether it's apes, orangutans, and I can't remember, and I think it's an orangutan, which is actually the most developed form, but whatever it is, it's a chimpanzee, ape, or gorilla, that has a particular type of skeletal structure. Then you have the current skeletal structure of a human being. 
And then you find these fossils that you can date back 5,000 years, 10,000 years, Cro-Magnon man, Neanderthal man, etc. Right? And those fossils are actually, uh, the skeletal structure of those fossils are, seem like there's something in between. They're not 100% like our current skeletal structure, especially in terms of curvature of the spine, but they're not entirely like. So what they stipulate is that maybe this was this, there's this intermediate type of skeletal structure. Now you cannot logically prove that that intermediate skeletal structure was the forefather of human beings. That could have just been another species of ape or gorilla that died out, right? One response I will give you is that no, for example, those of you who follow the news very recently, they discovered a fossil of a couple. Uh, of, of two skeletons which are buried, were not buried rather, two skeletons which were discovered as if they were like lying in an embrace. And if you read the article, it actually says that they don't think that they were buried alive in an embrace, but that they died together and because of the love they had for one another, the people buried them together in this way of, as it looks like they're embracing one another. So obviously that suggests intelligent life, right? It's only intelligent life forms that buried their dead and that would actually be, have this emotional sensitivity to bury their dead in such a way that reflects the relationship they had with them. So there are two possibilities here, right? One is what they say is, okay, there was some type of semi-intelligent life form, and that is really the missing link between the primates, the gorilla system, and human beings. And that means that human beings evolved from apes. There's another possibility, is that, again, the first possibility was that that was some other species altogether that weren't humans. The other possibility is that we're willing to allow that human beings might have had a different skeletal structure because the Quran al-Karim gives some leeway to that. Uh, many of you would know that there's a very clear eye that unequivocally states that the age of Sayyidina Nuh al was 950 years. Now if he was 950 years, there are again two possibilities. Number one, that physiologically speaking, he was a different type of human being that you and me are. That is possible. The second possibility is simply that that was the hukam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that at that, for, for possibly for him, or some hadith suggests that this was maybe the norm in his ummah. So perhaps for all the human beings at the time, Allah SWT simply slowed the aging process, right? Just imagine that the normal process in which you and me age, in which we become whatever sort of very old or wrinkled by the age we're 70, if Allah SWT reduced that process or by a factor of, of 1 to 15, then it's possible that somebody would actually be able to live 950 years. But... So it is also in theory possible, we would have no problem with that, that early human beings had a slightly different skeletal structure. And we have no problem, we actually ourselves believe that when Sayyidina Adam came to this world, there was very little technology. So if in these early human beings you find a flint axe or you find a simple type of tool, that's perfectly fine for us as well. What's not acceptable is, is the following, and there's no way that you can logically convince an evolutionary scientist of what I'm about to tell you. This is purely a matter of revelation over ruling science. And that is as follows, that when they believe in the human theory of evolution, at some point, and they don't postulate to you that they know exactly when it happened, but embedded in the theory is that there is some point when this evolutionary transition happened. In other words, there is going to be the quote-unquote first human being. And that first human being's parents were non-humans. They were whatever you want to call them, an ape, a gorilla, a chimpanzee, or whatever. That is not possible for us. Because we believe that Sayyidina Adam was the first human being, right? And not only do we not believe that his parents weren't apes, we don't believe that he even had parents at all. So the whole concept of how we believe the human species started. For us, Allah created the first human being in Jannah, 
right? Forget any type of evolution, it's not even a type of procreation. It's direct khalq, direct creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then that perfect human being in terms of Sayyidina Adam was completely possessive of his full intellectual faculties. He descended to earth and all of human beings then. The second step, Hawa salam, right? Coming from him. That's also something they would never accept. So our view of the origin of humanity cannot be explained logically or scientifically. It's simply based on the belief in the Qur'an and Sunnah. And there's no way anywhere in the world that somebody could study science and come up with a refutation of human evolution. And at least you could refute it through genetics, you can do other things. But to convince the evolutionary biologist of the Islamic view of the origins of humanity, there's no way you can do that on their terms. It's impossible. Right? Because our first terms are the Qur'an and Sunnah. And their first terms are logic and science and evidence and fossils and genetics. And these two things, are, they're not entirely incompatible. But when it comes to this particular issue, it's irrelevant for us. They can find all the evidence they want. For us, say, the first human being was the direct creation of Allah, did not evolve from anything, was not even born from any female's womb, was directly created from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that first human being was completely possessive of his intellectual faculties. And so there are many things, like what we're, and I'm trying to illustrate from this example, is that Islam does not in any way claim that it can reply to the answers or the challenges of everybody on their terms. There's no way you can do that, right? Islam is an invitation to leave those first principles and accept Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So if you talk about Iman, Iman billah, Iman bin risala, Iman bil akhirah. You have to accept those on Islamic terms. And even the greatest of Muslim minds, Imam al-Razi al-Himuhullah, many of the ulama, the mutakallimeen, they might have put forth logical proofs to prove the existence of God, or the omnipotence of God, etc., etc. But at the end of the day, you cannot logically prove the existence of God. Even if I was to suggest to you that somebody could do that, there's no way you can logically prove the Quranic God concept. In other words, at most you could convince somebody logically that there's one supreme being. But the fact that that one supreme being is Rahman, the fact that he is Hanan, the fact that he is Manan, the fact that he is Al-Jabbar, the fact that he is Zu Intikam, the fact that he is Al-Aziz, there's no way. So you cannot logically bring someone to the Islamic God concept. They have to submit to revelation and prophecy. So it's not even a Fardh Kifaya. And it's never been the case. It's never, Imam Ghazari and the other older ulama never tried to do this. They never tried to refute foreign theories by accepting their terms. And neither do Timothy Winter and Sherman Jackson. They may think that they can use Max Weber or other uh, Western scholarships uh, to prove anything Islamic. Now everybody might come to Islam through their own individual discovery. And that is a very good thing. And to some extent for purposes of knowledge, a person can benefit from the Western social sciences because it is true that many of these thinkers were genuinely, sincerely looking at the big questions. What is a human being? What is the nature of human life? What should ideal society be like? And to the extent that there's nothing in their thought that goes against the Quran and Sunnah, Islam does not demand you to reinvent the wheel. We are allowed to take and accept anything that any writer has said as long as it's not against our first principles. So let's take, for example, economics. The, the deen does not say you have to reinvent economics. You can borrow from all of the great economic thinkers of the past. 
as long as you use their thought to fulfill the maqasid or the purposes and objectives of the sharia or you don't do anything that's against the Quran and Sunnah. That is perfectly fine. If you want to come up with a concept of let's say a welfare society or of other such concepts, as long as there's nothing in them that's against our deen, that's perfectly fine. So there's a lot of borrowing that can happen. But a refutation of, their, of ideas that are against Islam can only be done on our own terms. It can't be done on their terms. If you ask me, anybody who attempts to do it on their terms is not searching victory. He's actually conceding defeat. If you have to use barbarian terms, you've actually conceded defeat. You've actually said straight up that my deen does not have the answer to your questions. I'm going to go into your own tradition and find the answer to your questions from your own tradition. So if you frame it that way, that Islam, the victory of Islam lies in its ability to answer questions, and then you use these non-Muslim sources to answer those questions, then what have you really done? Right? You've actually conceded that no, the Quran and the Sunnah don't have answers to these things. Right? And that's, that's precisely what I'm saying, that the Quran and Sunnah offers an alternative to these things. It does not offer an answer to these things based on their first principles. So studying, academia, intellectual activity, knowledge, reflection, all of these things are worthwhile. And a human being can benefit a lot from this. What I want to make sure people don't confuse is what Allah SWT in the Quran al-Karim has said is yaqeen. That is something to do with our iman, right? It's very interesting. It's a very interesting debate that took place uh, amongst the early ulama. And Imam Abu Nifari and Imam Shafi have different positions on this. And the question is as follows, that if somebody asks you, are you a believer, should you respond, Ana mu'minun insha'Allah? Or should you say, Ana mu'min? So Imam Shafi says that you should say insha'Allah. Why? Because you should think that I'm a mu'min, but it's possible, I'm not sure, or it's only due to the mashiyat or the wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I would be persistent and constant on my iman, and I would die in my iman. Imam Rikfari says, no. You should not say insha'Allah, it's makru. You should say an mu'min. You should be firm, you should have husn you should have. you should do izhar of istikama, right? Not because maybe you think that the strength of iman in your heart is so strong, but the things that you have iman in, in other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa etc. are such unshakable things, that although my own individual heart might be shakable, my imaniyat, the things I have iman in are absolutely unshakable, that's why I can say with yaqeen. Right? And that's really what we have to be clear about. So if a person is thinking that, no, what do I do if I'm having doubts of faith, I'm having skepticism? So that means that person is saying, how can I get yaqeen? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran al listen carefully. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That you should do ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Keep worshipping Him. Keep praying to Him. Keep making your salah, your talawa, your dua, your dhikr, your istighfar, your salawat, your, your reflection, everything. Keep worshipping Him. Hatta anta'tiyal yaqeen until such a point that yaqeen is bestowed upon you. So it means that Allah subhanahu wa could have said, right? Fata'akkalu, use your aql. Hatta anta'tiyal yaqeen. He could have said, fata'dabbaru, uh, reflect and ponder. Hatta anta'tiyal yaqeen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have said, فَتَفَكَّرُوا Reflect, حَتَّى أَن تَعْتِيَ الْيَقِينَ Until yaqeen comes to you. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, ibadah. Right? And this is really... If, so if there's an individual seeker who's seeking out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is worried that I might have a lapse in faith or what can I do to make sure I'm not shakable? The answer to this is not even our own uloom, let alone the uloom of people outside of Islam. The answer to this clearly in the Qur'an is deen, is taqwa, is ibadah, is tahara, is dhikr, is salah, is tilawah. It's through these things that a person gets yaqeen. 
and that is experiential knowledge. So to dismiss experience and to suggest that logic is the only way that a person can attain this. Logic is a way that you can refute them on their terms. And that's a worthwhile task. I personally don't think it's part of the kifaya, but that's worthwhile. If somebody can do that, that's, and sometimes I try to do that, right? That, that's wonderful. If you can actually expose the inner hypocrisies or inner contradictions of secularism or whatever using their own writers or using non-Muslim writers. That, that's a worthwhile exercise. But that exercise does not bring you to yakin and imam. It's a totally separate thing. It's an ilmi activity. Within our own deen, ilmi activity can bring you to many things. But if you want yakin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, it's worship, it's spirituality, it's your inner development that will bring you to yakin in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Once you have yakin that the Quran is haq, you have yakin in the ta'limat al nabi and the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa then the Quran and the sunnah are hakim. The Quran and the sunnah adjudicate and they will judge and decide amongst all of these other things. Without that judge, then our life is a mystery. And really, I mean, that's really the superiority of revelation and prophecy. That these people are banging, the, even though they might be sincere, they might be humanist. But there's only so far they can go. It's only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through revelation and prophecy who can actually tell us what is the ideal type of human being and what is the ideal human society and the ideal human polity. So we have to separate three things then. One is the benefit and to the extent to which the benefit of whatever, knowledge outside the deen of Islam, it has a benefit. Its use, its utility, its function, its purpose, it has all of that. But everything has to be given its relative place. Secondly, the benefit of the ulum of the deen, specifically, right, the, the writings of, our, of the great giants of this Islamic intellectual tradition. That also has a much greater benefit than the first category, but it also has a particular relative place in Islam. The third thing is the ulum of the Qur'an and Sunnah. Right? So there's a gradation. That's the highest type of ilm. Which is again, revealed ilm. Even the sunnah is a type of wahi. Rasulullah the words were of his own choosing, but the meanings were inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the fourth thing is outside ulum altogether. And the fourth side is our own worship, our own dua, our own prayer, our own reflection, our own, if you want to use these categories, our own quote-unquote experience. There's no way that that is sidelined. In fact, that is extremely important in Islam. And if you just look at Rasulullah wasallam and the Sahaba, do you think that in Medina Manawar and Masjid al-Nabwi, there were some high-level intellectual discussions going on, or a comparative study of the intellectual philosophies of that age or of that zamana, and that the Sahaba were intellectually won over to the, to the Quran and Sunnah, or to the arguments of the Prophet wasallam? No. The, the transformative thing, what, what transformed the Sahaba was their deen was their ibadah, was the character, the adlam, the akhlaq of the sunnah, right? And to, to negate that or to sideline that or to relegate that, uh, you know, that is really, you know, I mean, it's not deliberate, it's an unfortunate, you know, for somebody maybe who's disconnected with the tradition can make that mistake. And it's certainly not anywhere near what, what the contemporary thinkers of Islam, which is correct. You have better thinkers in the West. And there are many reasons for that, Right? Uh, and out of those better thinkers, you take those two, Timothy Winter and Sherman Jackson, they're extremely grounded in the tradition, they are not, and they are very in touch with ibadah, they're, both of them are very in touch with dhikr, both of them are very in touch with 
you know, with experience. And actually both of them converted to the deen of Islam due to experience and not due to logic uh, or any type of rational proof or convincing. And so, you know, for, so for an average person, if you get a question in your mind, there are lots of questions that people will have. You know, uh, there's so many questions you would notice that we do in Islam, women and gender. Why is there polygamy? Why doesn't a woman have a right to divorce? Why does a daughter get half as much as a son? Why is a woman's testimony half that of a man in particular types of financial transactions? And you will notice also I've touched upon some of these issues in class. And I do offer logical reasons for them. I also engage in this game, right? That to some extent, that okay, to whatever extent you can use logical arguments to appease your our doubts and concerns, that is fine. But at the end of the day, and it should be very clear, the real reason why a daughter gets half as much as a son is simply because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said it to be in the Qur'an. And there, not only did He simply say that, but there must be some hikmat in that. And that hikmat actually transcends our reason. So no matter what great logical reasoning we can put up on the board, the hikmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decision, the wisdom of His decision, the wisdom of His blueprint designed for the way humanity should function, that hikmat far transcends anything that we might be able to come up with. That might be just a mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon the members of this ummah, that He has enabled, He has rewarded the ulama, that when they used to dive deep into the oceans of the Qur'an and Sunnah, He would give them these understandings, these ma'ani, these ma'arif, and they would emerge from them and they would do tafsir, explain these things in ways that would maybe appeal to our aql. But the fact that it appeals to our aql is not its justification. Its justification is because it's the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is a ruling in the Qur'an al-Karim. And it's very important to make that clear. Because if we set this up for ourselves, but you know, I'll be honest with you, right? If you look at a U.S. campus, and I'll agree with you, 10% of the Muslims prayed, Jummah. Out of those 90% who didn't pray, you know what, in Shaka, 80% of them had read Weber. So if you think reading Weber brings you to the deen of Islam, well, go back to the 90% of people on your campus who weren't praying Jummah, right? 80% of them had read Max Weber. If 80% of them had read Ghazali, I bet you the numbers of prayer would have increased. Okay, so if we set it up this way, right, we're, it's very dangerous. Because if a, if a young person is taught that, that you don't know I have to do this, what happens if that person reads Weber is not convinced, Right? It's part of your own experience and your own outlook that might... You, and that is really actually, to be honest, it's a very pious person who can actually extract the deen of Islam from Max Weber. An average person isn't going to be able to do that, right? Uh, it's more likely that a person would do that from our own ulum, or our own ulama, or a person might be able to do that if they're enabled, it's more difficult, but if a person can directly study the Qur'an and Sunnah. So we can't set that up for us, right? Uh, that is not the way for us to reconcile questions that we have uh, in the deen of Islam. It might be a way for us to answer certain questions that people from the secular side raise and that we have to know they're answering them on their terms. Or the real answer to that is really to full, fully and wholeheartedly submit to the Islamic paradigm, right? Which far transcends these petty concerns uh, that you know certain people in the secular modernist side put forward. Uh, and you know we really have to think uh, it, it, it's very you know sad when you know it, it, it's wonderful that we're able to see the wonderful intricacies in Plato's thought or in Marx's thought or in Durkheim's thought or in you know Tocqueville's thought and it's wonderful when we can see the intricacies of even living thinkers, that's fine. 
and nobody's trying to dispute that or discredit that in any way. But I would just, and, some, and it's also amazing and wonderful to reflect upon the haqqaiq or the ma'arif in science, to look at the atom, to look at the subatomic particle, to look at the human body, human physiology, human anatomy, to look at the galaxy, to look at things at a macro level, to look at matter, dark matter, quantum physics. All of these things are fascinating. But what I would just suggest to you is that think about it this way. That imagine that these scientists put so much effort into studying the universe or the human body or the atom. And truly then after all of that labor, effort, study, learning, reflection, they actually discover pearls uh, and really treasures and treasures. So imagine then what would happen to that person who actually put that same amount of effort and learning and study into the Quran and Sunnah. What type of pearls and ma'ani and ma'arif and nukat would they discover in the Qur'an al-Kareem and the Sunnah of Nabi al-Kareem, right? They would far outweigh, they would be far more, infinitely more dazzling and, and brilliant than the type of nukat that Allah SWT has put in His physical creation, right? Because if, again, we will understand this from our own terms. In the Islamic perspective, no matter how great, how wondrous Allah SWT has created the Adam, no matter how wondrous and amazing Allah SWT has created the human being, no matter how amazing of a creation is the entire universe and it's all its galaxies, the most amazing thing Allah SWT has created is the deen of Islam, is His kalam, the Qur'an, and is the sunnah of Rasulullah Wasallam. That is the most amazing thing. So if you want to reflect into the mysteries of creation, well the most incredible thing to look at, I mean the Qur'an is uncreated, it's a sifat of Allah, but otherwise in the, in the deen or the sunnah or whatever, if you want to reflect upon something, then you should reflect into that. And that's really what happened. And if you think of a Nobel Prize winner in physics has come up with some wonderful intricacies in science, believe me, Imam Ghazali, Rehmullah, and his other ulama came up with some gems uh, and marvelous uh, intricacies into the meanings and the ma'arif of our deen and the Qur'an and Sunnah, right? And even one more level, even beyond that, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. And this is why in our tradition of the ulama, the ahli tasawwuf, the mashayikh who reflected deeply on the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through their ibadah they reached that level of yaqeen and they actually sometimes they would actually understand things about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what we call ma'rifat, right? Uh, Imam Huzai has written a whole treatise on this, Risala fi biyani ma'rifatillah, that the treatise on the explanation of what it means to have intimate knowledge of Allah, something Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has alluded to in the Quran al-Kareem, uh, Ar-Rahman fas'an bihi khabira, that if you want to know who Ar-Rahman is, what it means for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be Rahman, what His merciful nature is, fas'al, not don't use your tafakkur, don't reflect, don't use your aql. Fas'al makes so I'll ask that person. Should you ask that person who had aql? No. Ask that person who has ilm? No. Fas'al bihi khabira, ask that person who has khabar, who is informed, who knows the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a merciful person. So those people who spent so much time in ibadah, that's how they received yaqeen, because they would understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to whatever extent a human being can. Right, uh, because all human understanding is limited. Even scientists, when they claim they understand the universe, that is limited to whatever extent a human being can understand these things. And we are obviously limited, and that limitation to understanding Allah is perpetual. That will continue even in the akhirah. Allah subhanahu wa taala is beyond our entire, beyond the totality of our comprehension. But those people who do 
submit to his message, submit to the Quran al-Kareem, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases them in their ilm, increases them in their understanding of the deen, increases them in their yaqeen in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what every individual Muslim has to do. In other words, we want to go back to that issue of what is for the end. What is for the end is that every Muslim should be trying in their life to reach a level of yaqeen in their iman. That they should have absolute certainty. In everything, in, in not just in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but in each and every word in the Qur'an, each and every of the ahkam of the sharia, that is absolutely haq, right? And partly that will be done through study of our texts, of the works of our ulama. But partly it's also going to be done through ibadah, through experience, through worship. فَعْبُدَ hatta hatta سبحان الله من هام الله مسني على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكوننا من الخاسرين ربنا يا الله يا رب الكريم ظلمنا أنفسنا يا الله we have wronged ourselves Ya Allah, we have allowed ourselves to follow the whims and desires of our aql and our intellect. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we have lost the ulum of the Qur'an of the Sunnah. Ya Allah, we have lost our study and reflection upon the Qur'an and Sunnah. Ya Allah, we have abandoned the legacy of the ulum of the ummat. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we have abandoned the ibadah that you promised in the Qur'an would lead us to yaqeen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to forgive us for these sins. Ya Allah, we ask you to send your complete and absolute mercy upon us. Ya Allah, we ask you to shower your forgiveness upon us. Ya Allah, we ask you to grant us hidayah and guidance. Ya Allah, we ask you to guide us to those a'mal that would bring us to yaqeen. Ya Allah, we ask you to guide us to that ilm that would bring us to yaqeen. Ya Allah, we ask you to grant us that understanding of the deen that would bring us to an unshakable and unstintable yaqeen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our ilm of the Qur'an al-Kareem. Increase us in our ilm of the ma'ani of the Qur'an. Increase us in our ilm in the ma'arif of the Qur'an. Ya Allah, give us the ability to Amal on each and every verse of the Quran. Ya Allah, give us ikhlas in all of those amal. Ya Allah, give us istiqamat in our amal and istiqamat in our ikhlas. And Ya Allah, grace all of this with your kubuliya and your acceptance on the Yom Adin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, let us give us the tawfiq, the ability and success to increase in our ilm of the sunnah. Ya Allah, let us have complete and absolute ilm of the sunnah of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Ya Allah, enable us to do amal on our ilm. Let us have ikhlas in our amal. And Ya Allah, grant us istiqamat in our amal and in our ikhlas. And Ya Allah, grace our relationship with the sunnah, with your kubuliya and the yawm deen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our ibadah. Ya Allah, increase us in the quantity of of our ibadah, increases in the quality of our ibadah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we too want to be mistaq of the ayah, fa'budullaha hatta anta'ti al-yakeen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, in our, if we look at ourselves, Ya Allah, we are not worthy of even asking for such a ni'mah as yaqeen. But Ya Allah, if we look at our environment, we look at our surroundings, Ya Allah, perhaps we are the ones who are the most needy of this ni'mah. Ya Allah, we ask you to bestow, us upon, bestow upon us the same yaqeen that you gave the Sahaba Kiram, radiallahu anhu jma'in, the same yaqeen that you gave the Tabeen and the Tabai Tabeen. Ya Allah, the same yaqeen that you gave the Imma, Mujtahideen, Mufassireen, Muhaddithin, Fuqahan, Mashaykh. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to give us a faith that is everlasting, a faith that we carry with us to the grave, a faith that in Iman that will have nur on the Day of Judgment,
judgment and iman that will be a means of our salvation and forgiveness on that day Ya Rabbi Karim we ask you to preserve our iman Ya Allah we ask you to preserve each and every aspect of our iman Ya Allah we ask you to guide us to all of those things that will lead us to kamal iman Ya Rabbi Karim Ya Allah we ask you to increase us in our love for you Allahumma inna nas'aluka hubbaka wa hubba ma yuhibbuk Ya Allah increase us in our love for you and for those who love you and for those who are beloved to you and increase us in our love for Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Allah for his a'mal and Allah for his sunan Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you to adorn us with all of the attributes and the sifat of the mu'mineen that you have mentioned in the Quran Ya Allah make us people of tawakkul make us people of zikr make us people of sabr make us people of salah make us people of tilawa make us people of dua make us people of istighfar Ya Allah make us people of tawbah of inaba of talab and of ragba Ya Allah make us people of mahabba Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you to forgive us for all of our sins Ya Allah, we ask you to protect us from knowledge that would harm us. And Ya Allah, we ask you to guide us to knowledge that would benefit. Ya Allah, we ask you for ilmun nafi. Ya Allah, we ask you knowledge that will benefit us in our deen and will be means of benefiting others in this world. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask you to remove any and all obstacles that we may have in facing the deen. Ya Allah, we ask you to open up the understanding of the Qur'an and Sunnah to our hearts. Ya Allah, let there not be any single doubt that remains in our heart. Ya Allah, truly you said about the Qur'an, La Rebafi, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you, we make dua that you make our hearts in the same way, that there is no doubt or discrepancy inside them. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to guide us to everything that is good and everything that is pleasing to you. Incline our hearts toward it. Ya Allah, there be nothing more pleasing to us than in that in which lies your pleasure. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to disincline us and save us from those things that incur your displeasure or invite your anger and wrath. Ya Allah, those of us who may be sick, Ya Allah, we ask you to, we ask you to grant us health. Those of us who may be needy, we ask us to grant you the risky halal, tayyib, the purest and noblest forms of wealth. Ya Rabbi Kareem, those of us who may have those of us who are searching for a partner, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to grant us a partner that is best for our akhirah, best for our deen, as well as good for our life in this world. A person with whom, who can support us in our deen and who will be a means of us earning your pleasure. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, who will be a means of our libas, a means of our sukoon, as you have described in the Qur'an of Kareem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, those of us who have children, Ya Allah, we ask you to safeguard the iman of our children. Ya Allah, raise our children and make them amongst the ranks of the ulama and awliya, as you have defined these terms in the Quran of Kareem Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah accept our children for the khidmat of the deen Ya Allah make our children amongst the ibadis salihin Ya Allah make our children firm and steadfast in the salat al-mustaqeem Rabbana takabbal minna innaka anta samiyul alim wa tub alayna innaka anta tawab al-rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya alhamar rahimin